Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. As I think I've mentioned, I plan to start a new series in the book of Galatians this year. But before we get to that series, I want to take three Sundays starting the new year to look at three pillars, if you will, or three prerequisites of a spiritually healthy church. Now, this brief series comes out of discussions that our elders here at Westminster have had this past fall. In September, we hosted a conference for pastors and elders looking at biblical markers of a spiritually healthy church. And then after that, we had a a retreat uh, as elders discussing further how this applied to us as a church. And coming out of those discussions, there were three specific areas that we had laid on our hearts as, uh, as a session where we see positives in our church, but also real room for us to grow. And our prayer is that seri- this series is a bit of a springboard for us in these areas this year. Now, it's just a, maybe a quick clarification before we jump in. My focus here is not on the things that a church must do to be a faithful church. In other words, uh, we know in our history and tradition that a, a church must preach the Word of God, and it must hold forth the sacraments to its people and practice church discipline and calling its people away from sin and towards righteousness. But that's not my focus in this series. My focus here is to recognize that it's possible to do all of the right things and preach the right doctrines but still show little signs of spiritual life and health or the work of God's Spirit among you. And it's that spiritual vitality that is my focus in these three weeks. So let's uh, dig in today. The first pillar or the first prerequisite, if you will, of spiritual health and vitality in the church is a life of intentional, earnest, and persistent prayer. And in order to begin looking at this, I want to read together Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 20. Follow along as I read from God's Word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God, I pray that you would use your word this morning in our hearts, in our lives, to draw us to Christ and to encourage us to draw new to you in prayer and day by day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks after Christmas, it might not surprise you to know that one of the most popular gifts this Christmas was gift cards. Uh, According to one report, 
just this Christmas season, Americans gave one another $30 billion worth of gift cards. That's a lot of gift cards. But what you may not know is that as fun as it is to get a gift card, many gift cards are never used and never spent. In fact, Starbucks, who sells one of the largest number of gift cards of any company in the nation, reports that over the last three years, they are averaging more than $175 million per year in revenue from gift cards that are bought and never used. It's $175 million of bought gift cards just at Starbucks. I mean, think of all the coffee Americans are missing out on. At Starbucks these days, that could probably buy you at least 10 drinks. And that's, and that's just one store. A survey this past summer estimated that Americans knew they were holding on to $23 billion worth of unspent gift cards. And that didn't count the ones that are lost or forgotten. And we might be thinking, $23 billion forgotten in a drawer and never used. What a waste! But at the end of the day, let's face it, that's just $23 billion of American materialism. Some coffee, maybe a few pairs of socks, a dinner out. But what does that really cost us? Meanwhile, Scripture tells us that we have been given an unfathomable gift, communion with God and Jesus Christ. And we've been offered a mind-boggling promise, the power of the Spirit of God at work in us. And Scripture tells that that these gifts are always and freely available to us through prayer. And yet for many of us, this unfathomable gift is minimally used, leaving great spiritual blessings for ourselves and for Christ's church untouched. And that's a way bigger deal than gift cards. So what I want to do this morning is encourage us in prayer with four observations from Scripture about prayer, and then four applications for the church about prayer. Four observations from Scripture about prayer, and then four applications for the church about prayer. Let's start with the observations. Observation number one is the practice of prayer in the church. And here what I want to suggest is that as you paid your way through the New Testament, and this would be true of the Old Testament as well, but this morning I'm going to focus particularly on the example of the church in the New Testament. What you find is that in every single situation, good or bad, practical or spiritual, the church responded with prayer. In Ephesians chapter 1, which we just read, Paul reported a fairly common uh, fact, you might think. He has heard that the Ephesians became Christians. He has heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. And when he hears this, how does he respond? He prays for them. He prays that the Ephesian believers would grow in their knowledge of God and their understanding of their glorious inheritance in Christ. Paul doesn't take it for granted that these things will happen. God has promised them, he's held them out, but Paul prays for them. And he prays that the resurrection power of God would bring this spiritual growth to pass in his people. Well, that's how Paul responds when he hears about believers. How does Paul respond when he hears about those who don't know Christ? Well, he prays and asks for prayer. Colossians 4.3, he asked the Colossians to pray that God would open 
for him a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Maybe you think about the church as they think about the world and the areas that don't know Christ and the call to send out missionaries to different parts of the world. Well, what did the church do? Acts 13, 1 through 3 reports that the church gathered together in prayer, worship, and fasting. And at the Spirit's direction, they set Paul and Barnabas apart, laid hands on them, and prayed and sent them out. Believers and unbelievers, Paul responds with prayer. Well, in James chapter 5, 13 through 16, James takes us on a little tour of the different types of things we might experience in life, and he calls us to respond to each of them in prayer. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And I would note that singing praise is a a form of prayer as we hold forth to God our praise and thanks. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him. If he has committed any sins, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you will be healed. Every situation, here's the situation, let them pray. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says if we have anxieties or worries, we should not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, bring your requests to God. And in case Paul's missed anything, in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he just says, pray without ceasing. And so the first observation that I want us to see as we work through Scripture is that the church demonstrates an intentional practice and an automatic reflex to turn to God in earnest prayer in every single situation that faces them for practical needs, for spiritual growth on their own, and corporately as a body. And that should set us a pattern. Well, that's the first observation. The second observation I want us to see is the power of prayer. You may remember that passage in Acts chapter 4 when the apostles are arrested and threatened by the Sanhedrin. And when they're released, what did they do? They went back with their friends, their fellow believers, and they prayed. And we read in Acts 4.31 that when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Now you might say, boy, that's real power. The whole house was shaken. But that happened back then. That that kind of thing doesn't really happen right now. I would like to make two points here. First, God didn't usually shake buildings in the New Testament church either. That was a bit of a unique uh, testimony even in Scripture. But what we do find both then and now, as we hear from God's people, is that there are times that God grants a unique evidence of His presence with His people, particularly in situations of persecution and hardship. But the other thing I want to draw your attention to is that the power of this prayer is not primarily seen in the fact that the building was shaken. The power of prayer is the fact that their prayer was answered. Acts 4.31 says they were filled with the Spirit and they continued to preach the Word of God with boldness. Well, if you go back to Acts 4, what was it that the apostles were praying for? They prayed, Sovereign Lord, may we continue to preach the Word with boldness. That was their prayer. And the power of prayer is seen that they immediately continued to do exactly what they prayed for. Their prayer was answered. We can see the same thing in James chapter 5. The sick are healed. Sins are forgiven. 
Wisdom is granted. We see throughout Acts, the gospel bears fruit as God's people pray. And that's why James 5.16 comes to the conclusion, after calling us to pray in every different situation in life, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Paul Miller authored the book A Praying Life, and he tells the story of a man who came up to him after giving a talk on prayer and with great skepticism challenged him as to whether he had really seen any tangible example of God directly answering a prayer that Paul had prayed. Well, Paul Miller went back and grabbed his stack, uh, his his, uh, uh, binder of three by five cards, which he kept, in which he chronologically wrote down the requests that he was praying for. And as he saw God answer them, he wrote at the bottom of the card, God's answered. And so he challenged the man. He said, in case you think I'm stacking the deck, I'll let you choose any cards you want to from this box. And the man chose card after card after card. And reading the request, Paul Miller shared with him how God had specifically, intangibly answered that prayer. Maybe not in the time frame he had hoped. Maybe not even in the way he expected. But in every case, as he watched for the Lord to answer prayer, the Lord had answered. And of course, we know that God doesn't say yes to every prayer. The the Apostle Paul himself prayed that the thorn in his flesh would be removed, and God said no for his purposes and his glory. Nor does God say that he will give us every material blessing we ask for. He's far more concerned to be at work spiritually in our lives and give us things we want. But the dominant theme of Scripture is God's power and delight in answering the prayers of his people. Now, as I say this, I would like to offer a a point of clarification. The point is not that your prayers and my prayers are powerful in and of themselves. Prayer expresses our utter and complete dependence upon God. And the thing that has power is God and His Spirit. I was thinking about this example this week. I am a golf fan, and so every spring I look forward to watching the Masters golf tournament. And I was imagining if a golfer won the Masters, and the sports writers immediately started exclaiming, wow, his golf clubs really played well this weekend. Boy, his golf clubs really came through in the clutch. Well, we all say that's ridiculous. Now, of course, if the golfer tried to play without golf clubs, he never would have won the Masters. He wouldn't have been able to do anything at all. But it was the player, not the clubs, that won the tournament. And I think maybe we could say something similar about our prayers. Paul never put hope in his prayers in and of themselves. No, he put his hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. But how do we experience the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit? By asking the Lord in prayer and complete dependence upon Him. And just like with the golfer, it would be complete folly for us to expect to see the Lord at work in some way in our lives without any prayer. That is the means that God uses. And so the observation number two is the consistent testimony that the Spirit's power and help come to the church through prayer. The practice of prayer, the power of prayer. Third observation is the privilege of prayer for God's people. Earlier in the service, we read Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, where we read that God, in the abundance of His grace, sent His Son to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, 
God says, He sent His Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Prayer in fellowship with our God is possible because God sent His Son to give His life, to redeem us and reconcile us to God and open the way again into His presence. And He has sent His Holy Spirit into our hearts to unite us to Himself as His children. If you don't know Christ, you don't yet know this privilege of free, open prayers, His children. Though the offer is extended to you, you will come to Him. But now, with our sins covered by the blood of Christ and God's fatherly love secured towards us in Christ, we have the freedom and the right to come to Him at any time and call Him Papa, Abba, Father. And what an incredible privilege that is. There's a story about Teddy Roosevelt when he was president living in the White House. One of his sons, who was young at the time, went out for a walk in the city of Washington and passed a pet shop where there were four snakes for sale. And being suddenly inspired, his son went in and bought all four of them. And being so excited to tell his father about this purchase, he ran straight back to the White House, up to the East Wing, and into the Oval Office where Teddy Roosevelt was meeting with a group of senators. And his son said, you'll never believe that dad, and he plopped the four snakes right on the executive desk. And I want you to just ask yourself for a second, if you or I decided that we would run into the White House and into the East Wing and into the Oval Office, what do you think would happen? You'd probably be shot. Because we don't have access. We have no right to be there. Though the son of the president had the right to come in. We're talking about the God of the universe and all of His holiness and majesty. And it is worth asking, what right do we have to come into His presence with our requests and prayers whenever we want to? And the answer, according to John 1.12, is every right in the world if we have come through faith in Jesus Christ. Because John 1.12 says, whoever believes in Him, He gave the right to be called children of God. And that privilege is most clearly expressed in our freedom to come to Him and bring all our requests to Him in prayer. And it is an awesome privilege. That's the third observation. Now, fourth, if you consider this privilege of prayer and the power of prayer, it's no wonder that fourthly we see the priority of prayer in Scripture. And we see this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. This is the first verse in two chapters that Paul spends telling the church how they should operate. He talks about their worship service. He talks about the qualifications of elders and deacons and how the church is supposed to operate. And in verse 1, right at the beginning, he says this, First of all, then, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Before you do anything else, church, the first thing you do is pray. When Paul Miller was here a few years ago for the Praying Church Conference, he noted that churches like ours tend to take the twofold command to pray and preach the Word. And we put a tremendous focus on preaching the Word. But we often fail to put as much focus on prayer. And he said, imagine a bodybuilder who only worked out one arm all the time. If he had a super powerful one arm and a completely anemic other arm, would he really be prepared 
to compete successfully in his profession? And the answer is absolutely not. And the question is, why do we think we would be successful in God's calling to us without prayer? This is not for one millimeter to devalue the importance of the Word, not at all. It's to elevate the importance of prayer. As one of the speakers at our conference in September put it, no pastor can do anything of value, no matter how much he preach, if he is not first praying. And so as we look at Scripture and observe the New Testament church, what we find over and over is that they practiced prayer in every situation. They experienced the power of prayer through the Holy Spirit's work in answering their prayers. They held prayer as a high privilege and they gave it first priority in their life together. And all that emphasizes the main point I want to hold before us this morning. And that is that the first pillar, the first prerequisite for a spiritual, spiritually healthy church is intentional, earnest, and persistent prayer. And I think as I reflect on this, the question that hits me squarely in the face is this. How much of this privilege, of this power, do we leave on the shelf? Do we leave unspent as the people of God? How do my attitude and practice of prayer match up to what I find in the church in God's Word? As we consider that question, then, let me conclude much more briefly with four applications for the church about prayer. Maybe these are applications, maybe these are expectations, but four things to shape our prayers. First is this. Prayer takes time, energy, and commitment. The kind of prayer that leads to spiritual life and vitality in the church is not a short, routine prayer at a few moments throughout the day. You remember how in Acts chapter 6, when the church set apart deacons to help serve food to the widows who were in need, the apostles made two comments of particular interest there. They said they were not able to serve food to those who were in need because they must devote themselves to prayer and the Word. And I want you to see two things there. First of all, they said that they must devote themselves to prayer. To devote yourself to something is to work hard at it. It is to give it effort, commitment, and thought. For the apostles, not only did it mean this kind of effort and thought, it meant giving up doing other things. They felt that their time devoted to prayer was so important that they needed to not serve food to those who were in need in order to spend this time in prayer. And it wasn't that the church shouldn't do both, but they needed to find ways as a church for this time in prayer to happen. And I wonder if we approach prayer that way, that we ought to give other things up in order to spend time in prayer, time that we devote with thought and energy and effort. John Curry is a a professor at Westminster Seminary who's preached in this pulpit a number of times, and he said this, he said, the kind of prayer that the Lord commands is neither casual nor perfunctory. It is fervent, earnest, and protracted prayer. Churches that are orthodox in truth but dead in spiritual life may often be due to the lack of persistent laboring prayer. And our desire is that we as a church would be devoted to prayer. That's why our session has committed to more prayer and to being there for prayer tonight. But this isn't just for apostles and elders. Kids, every one of you 
are encouraged to pray and can have an impact on the kingdom of God when you pray. Those of you who are homebound, maybe those of you who don't have the strength or the energy to serve in different ministries, you can have a powerful and active ministry in the church for the progress of the gospel through your time in prayer. But it will take that committed effort individually and corporately. So that's my first application. Second, the goal of our prayer should be to commune with Christ. I wonder if you sometimes feel that you turn to pray, but you just have sort of a laundry list of requests to read before God. Other times I wonder if you pray about your anxieties and find your anxieties and worries increasing as you pray instead of decreasing as you pray. And in both cases, the issue, I believe, is that we do not approach prayer as a chance to commune with Christ and gaze on Him, but it becomes a time to think more about me and my problems and my desires. But prayer, by its very nature, is walking into the presence of God in union with my Savior to rehearse His promises, to review His character, and to remember His salvation. And as prayer is an opportunity to commune with Christ, it begins to take on a new life among us. Here's how Alistair Begg put it. He said, There is nothing greater that can be known or heard or experienced than that this God is your Father and you are His child. That you can say you belong to Him and that you know you can come to Him and pray to Him. We don't enjoy increasing fullness of God through some mystical experience or inward explosion but through the work of the Spirit leading us into ever-deepening response to God, causing us to wonder that we are God's children. And that is what praying is all about. Communing with God, not focusing on my problems or my wants. That's my second application. Third, I would suggest to you that our prayer requests should focus more on spiritual matters and less on temporal physical, and material matters. Now, again, I don't want us to say that there's anything off limits for prayer. We're to bring everything to the Lord in prayer. But if we hold our prayers up to the prayers of Scripture, like one of those spot the difference games, I think we would find pretty quickly that our prayers are predominantly focused on material and physical needs of this world, and Scripture's prayers are predominantly focused on spiritual requests and the progress of the gospel. We just start to look through Ephesians 1. Paul prayed that the Ephesians might understand the riches of their inheritance in Christ, that they might know God and the immeasurable greatness of His power at work in them. In Ephesians 3, he prays that they would be strengthened in their inner being, that Christ might dwell in their hearts to comprehend the height and the depth and the breadth of the love of God. Philippians 1, Paul prays for the church that they would abound in love, be pure and blameless till the day of Christ, be filled with the fruit of righteousness to the glory and praise of God. Colossians 1, Paul prays for all spiritual understanding and to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that they would be strengthened with all power for endurance and patience and joy. His focus is on spiritual matters. And my recommendation is not that we stop praying for practical things, but that those diminish and we increase our prayers for the things of God, for spiritual growth and the progress of the gospel. And as we do, our desires will be shaped to match God's greatest desires. 
And as he answers those prayers, we will begin to see the power of the Spirit at work in our lives together. Well, finally and briefly, pray with great expectation. Because remember who we're praying to. God is God, Lord of lords, King of kings. He is the one who puts on strength as a belt, whose throne is established from of old and whose arm is not shortened, that he could save. Of course, God is not there to do whatever we want him to. He will say no to some of our requests. But I would suggest that our problem is often that we pray for too little or too many insignificant things and not that we're praying for too much. Samuel Miller was a Presbyterian pastor in New York during the time of the Revolutionary War and afterwards, and he put it this way. He said, we are too apt to be satisfied with small and occasional contributions of service instead of desiring great things, expecting great things, and praying great things. And so nurturing in our spirits that holy elevation of affection that embraces in its desires the whole kingdom of God. My prayer for us this year is that we would have a passion for spiritual blessing and pray for it boldly in the name of our Savior. As we come to the end, and we come to the Lord's table, a Lord's table which reminds us that Christ gave his body and his blood for us to secure this right for us as his children to come into his presence. I end with the same question that I asked earlier. We have been invited into the presence of God and given the privilege of prayer. Will we take that gift or will we leave it unused and unspent on the shelf? Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for the privilege and the power of prayer as your spirit is at work among us for your glory. Oh, may we come to you. Oh, may we desire to commune with you. May we draw near in prayer with ever-increasing joy and devotion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.